Our first scripture this morning comes from the book of Acts, chapter 3, verses 12 through 19. Let us listen now for God's word. When Peter saw it, he addressed the people. You Israelites, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though power, as though by our own power or piety we made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our ancestors has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and rejected in the presence of Pilate, though he had decided to release him. But you rejected the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And by faith in his name, his name itself has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given him this perfect health in the presence of all of you. And now, friends, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. In this way, God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, therefore, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Our second reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 36 to 48. While they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. He said to them, Why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed, him, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate in their presence. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. This is the word of the Lord. So as we continue moving, out, moving uh, throughout this Easter season and making our way towards Pentecost, the gift of the Holy Spirit, this week, we encounter another of Jesus' post-resurrection stories, these uh, appearances that he made to his disciples at various times. And this one is similar in many ways. It may sound rather familiar to what we read last week. He, he appears among his disciples suddenly and unexpectedly, and his first words to them, again, are, Peace be with you. And he invites them to see and to touch his wounds that still remain on his resurrected body. And then there's this interesting little bit about the disciples 
mistaking him for a ghost, which is actually not the first time that has happened to him, which is kind of funny. But, but it's important for Jesus to show them, no, no, I'm really here. It's me. This is not some spirit that you're seeing. It's not a ghost. This is my body. You can touch me. And, and he's there among them. And, and as he's there, the disciples are overcome with this mixture of joy as well as disbelief. How can this be? How can he be here in front of us right now? And then in what is by far my favorite part of the account, in case any of them still had any doubts, he eats some broiled fish to prove that he's a real human. So in case there's any wonder, right, okay, he ate the fish, all right, so he's the real deal. But also in this particular passage, one of Jesus' primary goals uh, seems to, to be to open their minds to how to read Scripture, to how, how Scripture has pointed all along to this moment, to the suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus, that, that everything written in the, in the Law of Moses, in the Prophets, and in the Psalms, all was fulfilled in Him. And I think this is kind of one of those things that we tend to take for granted. Most of us have, have likely not known Jesus apart from his identity as the Messiah, right, as the Christ. So whenever we read the Old Testament, whenever we read these Old Testament texts, we are constantly looking for and constantly see uh, ways that they might be pointing us towards Jesus, right? I mean, there are certain texts that we just cannot read without seeing Jesus in them. But what's important to keep in mind is that there were many different ideas floating around uh, Judaism at this time about who the Messiah would be and what his mission would be, and perhaps more importantly, what he would accomplish, right? what he would do. Many expected uh, a king in the line of David who would restore Israel to her former glory. And Jesus certainly is that, but not quite in the way that it was expected. And others spoke of a prophet like Moses who would come teach proper interpretation of Torah, right? teach people the way uh, to righteousness. And Jesus also certainly did that, but again, not quite in the way that was expected. And then in a, in a group of texts that, that we typically uh, refer to as the Dead Sea Scrolls, you may have heard of, this particular group of folks uh, seems to have expected two different messiahs, one king and the other a priest. But it's, it's unclear how widespread that belief was. But the point is that there were many different ideas kind of circulating about who this Messiah was to be. And it's important to know and to, to keep that in mind that there was not kind of one clearly defined role that, that people necessarily anticipated. And so, you know, we can, we can look in the Hebrew Bible and point to texts like Isaiah 53 that we looked at in Sunday school this morning, or Psalm 22, texts that say, you know, he was wounded for our transgressions, right? By his stripes, we are healed. And we can't help but hear the echoes of Jesus, and, and rightly so, I think. <clears throat> and when we hear texts like that and think, you know, we, we might think like, well, how can people hear this and not think of Jesus as the Messiah, right? It, it seems crazy. It's right there in God's word. But again, it's important to keep in mind that who the Messiah was was very much kind of a live question, uh, a debate that people were having at this time. There are many portraits of the Messiah offered in the Hebrew Scriptures. And at one point in Isaiah 45, the prophet even refers to Cyrus, the king of Persia, as the Lord's Messiah, which is, is kind of a strange moment. 
And it's likely that many people may have thought of Cyrus in such terms because, after all, he was the one who uh, let the Jews return from exile, right? From the Babylonian exile, let them return home to Jerusalem and then recommissioned the building of the second temple. But this, this is all simply just to point out and say that, you know, while we can look at the Old Testament and rightly see Jesus all over the place, it's primarily because we have the gift of hindsight. We have the gift of reading the Old Testament through the lens of the resurrection. So for, for Jesus' earliest followers, his death was an absolute scandal. And all of these different ideas that are floating around about the Messiah, about who he, who he might be, the one idea that nobody in this time anticipated was that the Messiah would be the one who suffers and dies. That was not supposed to be a part of the story. If there was one thing the Messiah wasn't supposed to do, it was die. Because as God's anointed, the Messiah was supposed to be victorious, right? The Messiah was supposed to usher in God's glorious reign. And how can a dead man do that? Just before this interaction that we read today with the disciples is the famous story of the road to Emmaus, where Jesus appeared to a couple of other disciples as they're walking along the road. They're having this conversation, not realizing that they're talking to Jesus. And one of them says to Jesus, we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. So the implication, of course, being that he couldn't possibly have been the one to redeem Israel because he's dead, right? It can't happen anymore. He's gone. And the crucifixion was a particularly startling way for this alleged Messiah to die because, as any good Jew knows, especially at that time, Deuteronomy 21-23 quite clearly says, anyone who is hung from a tree is under God's curse. And how could the Messiah, God's own anointed one, be under God's curse. But that's the thing about resurrection, right? It has, it has a funny way of forcing us to rethink some things, forcing us to, to look again. In the light of the resurrection and guided by the resurrected Christ, the disciples return to God's revelation in the Hebrew Bible and slowly begin to realize that we should have seen this coming. This, this is who God is. When God moves among us, when God breaks into our world, it is always surprising. It's never in the way we expect it. It is always unexpected. And in Acts chapter 3, I think this is precisely what, G, uh, what Peter is trying to show the people, that, that this is how God moves. This is who God is. This is how God works. And Peter also calls the people to repentance, importantly. Repent, he says. Turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. And again, when, when we hear that word repentance in our modern context, I think it's, it's fraught with all sorts of kind of connotations that may not have existed in Peter's mind. The, the word for repentance literally refers to uh, a change of your mind, but not in a trivial way like, you know, I ordered the fish, but now I want the chicken instead. Nothing quite that silly, but it, it's a, like a complete rewiring of your mind, a transformation by God that changes the way we see the world. It changes the way we see everything. It is a, repentance is not simply, and it is about this, but it's not simply about saying, I'm a sinner, forgive me. It's about a new orientation, 
a new way of seeing the world, a new way of seeing ourselves in relation to God and to others. It's a reorientation that can only come from a disorientation. And also, repentance isn't simply a one-time thing. Right? Transformation, true transformation, takes at least a lifetime. And just as the disciples were overcome with joy and disbelief all at the same time, often one moment of repentance can lead to another and another and another. Because when we allow God to transform our lives and our hearts and our minds, we begin, sometimes very slowly, but we begin to realize other places in our lives and in our world that are in desperate need of God's transforming mercy. And so again, our minds are changed, are transformed, and we continue to repent. But our culture, including church culture, we generally kind of frown on this idea of changing our minds, right? Changing your mind, particularly about something important, is seen as a sign of weakness, right? We label politicians who change their minds on issues flip-floppers, right? And sometimes quite fairly, I might add, but sometimes not. But we call them flip-floppers, right? You know, make up your mind. You know, which, which one is it? And the reality is, you know, we kind of tend to act as though we, we have things all figured out. We have the answers already. Now, we wouldn't quite say it like that, I don't think, most of us. Uh, but, but the truth is, that's kind of how we tend to carry ourselves, that we do kind of have it figured out. And because of this culture that we live in, this culture of kind of digging in our heels and clinging to what we claim to know, we can often get ourselves into some trouble and find out later that our feet were in our mouths the entire time. You know, we knew that God was okay with slavery, right? And not only that, God condoned it. God said, you know, go right ahead. We knew that God didn't call women to any kind of ministry in the church, right? There were all sorts of things that we knew were not, were not the case. It was right there in front of us, plain as day. But then the Holy Spirit slowly called us to repentance. And we began even more slowly, to respond. And often with much kicking and screaming, but we did begin to repent. And it's amazing, you know, some of the things, and I think in our own time, that we continue to kind of refuse to budge on, that, you know, there are, there are certain things where we can be uh, more apt to take our identity, say, from a, like a, maybe a political party, rather than uh, our identity as who God has called us to be. So for instance, you know, there's this uh, overwhelming consensus among scientists about you know, climate change and all these things, that it's, it's real, it's caused by humans, the devastating effects, you know, all this kind of doomsday scenario type stuff. But we've allowed that to become a political issue, right? It's become this politicized debate. We've allowed politicians to define where we stand on this issue rather than our God-given identity as those who were charged from the very beginning with the care and stewardship of the earth that God made and called good. Stewardship of God's creation should not be a political issue. It should be something that is deeply connected to our identity as children of God, those who are made in God's image and God's likeness. So we still very much need repentance. We, we still need for our minds to be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to be able to admit when we're wrong, and that's, that's not easy. It's very hard. I mean, I'll be the first to raise my hand on that. No one wants to admit that they got it wrong. But just as those first disciples were forced to go back 
and reread the scriptures to discover how God had been moving in this particular way all along. I think we also need to take another look at the world around us through the lens of scripture, through the spectacles of God's word that is to us and for us. So the, the question I think that, that haunts us, the question that, that God asks of us is not if we should repent, but of what we need to repent. Where do we need God's transformation in our own lives? Because we all need God's transformation, even still. How do our own minds need to be changed, rewired, reoriented? And there are no easy answers. There's, these are difficult questions, but they are questions that we should be asking ourselves at all times, because God is always calling out to us. God is always calling us to repentance, time and time again. So may we have the humility to admit that we might be wrong from time to time. And may we have the, the, the trust in God's amazing grace, that God's arms are wide enough to accept us back again and again and again. Amen.